Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The copyright clash over Andy Warhol's Prince series is a case that could reshape the fair use defense to copyright infringement. But the Supreme Court oral arguments were freewheeling and punctuated by comic relief. Like this from Justices Clarence Thomas and Elena Kagan. Let's say that uh, I'm both a Prince fan, which I was in the 80s. And, um... No longer. (laughs) Well, uh, only on Thursday night. (laughs) The justices were considering whether Andy Warhol was within his rights to create 15 silkscreens of prints using a copyrighted photograph of the musician by rock and roll photographer Lynn Goldsmith. In trying to decide if Warhol's work had meaningfully transformed the photograph, the justices posed hypotheticals. Let's say that I'm also a Syracuse fan, and uh, I decide to make one of those big blow-up posters of orange prints and change the colors a little bit around the edges and put Go Orange underneath. Would you sue me? But some of the justices, including the chief justice, pointed out the transformative effect of Warhol's work. It's not just that Warhol has a different style. It's that unlike Goldsmith's photograph, Warhol sends a message about the depersonalization of modern culture and celebrity status and the iconic. And and he goes through the different uh, features to support that. So it's not just a different style. It's a different purpose. One is the commentary on modern society. The other is to show what Prince looks like. My guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Describe the issue here. This appeal to the Supreme Court arises out of a, a lawsuit for copyright infringement filed by Lynn Goldsmith against the Andy Warhol Foundation. Um, Lynn Goldsmith was a relatively famous photographer from the 70s and 1980s, um, famous for her photographs of rock stars. She has photographed, I I think I saw, more than 100 album covers of rock bands, which is incredible. And in 1981, she was commissioned by Newsweek, uh, which was doing a piece on a young and -and up-and-coming rock star by the name of Prince. She was commissioned to do a photograph uh, of him that would be used on the cover. And she did an absolutely iconic facial portrait of him, um, which really demonstrates 
the creativity of photography. It sort of shows him as a, as a very, very vulnerable young person who's obviously afraid of the limelight at that point of his career. Now, the curious thing, the photo was not actually used by Newsweek in his magazine story, opting instead for live um, photos of his live performance. But it was widely regarded as a, a great photograph of the early 80s. So move forward in time. In 1984, Prince has become a significant uh, rock star and celebrity in his own right, really a superstar of the music scene. And Vanity Fair magazine commissions Andy Warhol to do an illustration for the cover of um, its magazine relating to an article it's doing on Prince. And they expressly license this photo from Lynn Goldsmith of Prince, give it to Andy Warhol and say, we, we want you to use this photograph from Lynn Goldsmith as the basis for your illustration. And without apparently Vanity Fair or Lynn Goldsmith knowing it, he goes out and does a whole series of uh, brightly colored silk screens based on the photograph. And, and, and when I say based on it, it really takes the photograph and, and simply makes some changes to it, in particular adding color. The magazine Vanity Fair comes out with the cover shot that Lynn Goldsmith is expecting to see there. Andy Warhol then dies a couple of years later, I think in early 1987, and all of his uh, rights and assets pass to the Andy Warhol Foundation. A number of years later, Vanity Fair, after Prince dies, wants to sort of revisit this famous Vanity Fair uh, piece that it did in 1984 and ask the Andy Warhol Foundation for permission to use one of these silk screens uh, of Prince that Warhol had done in 84, and they put it on the cover of Annie Magazine. This is 2016. Lynn Goldsmith sees it on the newsstand, and she says, wait a minute, I didn't license that, and calls up Vanity Fair. They say, oh, um, well, we got it from the rights from the Andy Warhol Foundation, which says that they own the copyright. Uh, and so Lynn Goldsmith calls up the Andy Warhol Foundation, which takes a very aggressive position, uh, insisting that they've got the copyright on it, that she has no rights on it, and um, they're not about to pay her anything by way of a license fee. And indeed, they seem to be so confident in their position that they go to court and file a declaratory judgment lawsuit saying, we're seeking a declaration that we have not infringed upon Lynn Goldsmith's photograph based on the doctrine of fair use which is a complete defense to copyright infringement. The trial court in New York agrees with them and grants them summary judgment saying that the fair use defense protects these Andy Warhol silkscreens of Prince. Lynn Goldsmith takes it up on appeal to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit says, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Fair use does not cover this. And they rule in favor of Lynn Goldsmith going to the extreme extent of saying that summary judgment should be granted to her, that she wins, not even sending it back for further reconsideration or jury trial. She just wins. Um, and the Warhol Foundation has now appealed that decision from Second Circuit to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court held very interesting and lengthy arguments on Wednesday. Is the question whether Warhol's work transformed Goldsmith's photograph? Well, is that too so simplistic? 
to understand um, what's going on here, one has to understand a little bit about the fair use defense. The fair use defense statutory. It's written into the Copyright Act. It says that there shall be no copyright infringement if uh, secondary work is taking advantage of this fair use defense. The fair use defense says courts should consider four non-exclusive factors. The very first factor, which widely regarded as the most important, is for the court to look at the purpose and character of the secondary use. There are three other factors that all have to be considered, but that's usually considered the most important. And in a very famous decision by the Second Circuit a few years ago, Second Circuit, per Judge Lavelle, said that the key to this one factor is whether or not the secondary work somehow transformed the original work. And the Supreme Court has since bought into this transformative use test and is now part of the law, even though it's not in the statute. But I would say that the issue up on appeal here, Supreme Court, is not whether or not that's the law. It's not whether or not the work is transformative. The question really is, what does it mean? What is required for a work to be transformative? How do you transform a work in such a way that the fair use defense applies? There are many transformative uses that do not constitute fair use. And so the key here at issue for the Supreme Court is to give some sort of guidance, some sort of definition to the lower courts as to what constitutes a transformative use that is entitled to take advantage of the fair use defense. At one point, Justice Alito questioned whether judges were qualified to focus on the meaning of the work, or was that a job that should be left to art critics? And I remember that the Second Circuit criticized the district court judge for being an art critic. But how do you get out of this without being somewhat of an art critic? Well, it's a great question. And the Second Circuit, in saying that district court judges, trial judges, are not allowed to be art critics, are not allowed to sit in judgment on the artistic merits of work, take advantage of a long history going back over 100 years in that court, in the Second Circuit, with respect to artwork, music work, dramatic work, such as plays and novels, of saying that trial courts, judges cannot be critics of the work. And so that's a very well-grounded position that the Second Circuit took. The issue you raise is a very good one, is, well, if that's true, what do you do? And I think it's somewhat enlightening that the response that the counsel for the Andy Warhol Foundation gave to that question from Alito is that the judge should look at the work and and decide whether or not it is transformative or not. In essence, betting the farm on the argument that the Second Circuit in this long history of judges not being art critics is just wrong as a matter of law. It's a very strong and, and aggressive position that the Warhol Foundation. I mean, you have to remember here, June, what Justice Alito started off that colloquy saying was, well, if Mr. Warhol were alive today, what would he say was the meaning of this work that transformed it? He wouldn't tell you, though, right? Um, that's Andy exactly Warhol? right. And neither would counsel for the Andy Warhol Foundation. They essentially said, well, Mr. Warhol's testimony is not available, obviously, but it wouldn't have any meaning even if it did. It's up to the judge to look at it, which kind of surprised me. Which side did better in the oral arguments, would you say? So I was a little bit taken aback the extent to which you could place certain justices on one side or the other. Uh, we've talked about this before, June, but the, the passing of Justice Ginsburg 
and the retirement of Justice Breyer has transformed this court with respect to copyright law. Those two justices were the opposite ends of the spectrum, Justice Ginsburg taking a position that copyright should be strongly enforced, a really strong advocate for strong, vigorous copyright protection. And Justice Breyer was at the other end of the spectrum, opposing strong copyright protection. And so we were all wondering in the copyright community what this new court would um, do in this really important case. And keep in mind, June, this is the first time since 1994 that the Supreme Court has taken up a fair use question. And so it's not just a really important nodal point in copyright law that we're faced with, but a point in time in which we don't have the two principal advocates for the competing positions on the court anymore. And yet, notwithstanding that, it seemed that there were justices willing to step up and fill those roles. So on my scorecard here, I had Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts in the the camp that would say that this was a fair use. Justice Roberts, in particular, just came flat out and said, this is a different purpose. The Warhol prints had a different purpose from the photo. He said, Warhol sends a message about the depersonalization of modern culture and celebrity status. For all practical purposes, said he's voting in favor of the Warhol Foundation. Kagan's remarks took a similar approach. And then on the other side, I had what I think are four justices for the position that this is not fair use. Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Barrett, and Justice Kantanji Brown, all of whom posed hypotheticals to the counsel for the Warhol Foundation that sort of took this whole transformative use and new meaning test to its ridiculous limits. Justice Alito, I guess, asked the question, well, if you'd simply change the photo so that Prince was smiling, would that be a transformative use because it changed the meaning from a vulnerable young rock star to a happy rock star? Would that be good enough? Similarly, Justice Thomas, he asked a really interesting question. What if all you had done was colorize the edges of the black and white photograph of Prince, such that they were they were the colors of Syracuse University, and you were intending to send a commentary on supporting the sports teams at Syracuse University. These sorts of hypotheticals posed are typically intended by judges to point out the ridiculousness of somebody's position. And so the fact that those four justices all went that route with sort of extreme hypotheticals sent a message to me that they are leaning towards this not being a fair use. I will point out the Warhol Foundation, to the extent I have this right at this point, the scorecard would have to run the tables on the other three to get there. It's a um, very challenging case. Both sides say the potential stakes here are enormous, not just on the art world, but on publishing, on movies, and so on. Are they exaggerating, or do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. This is going to be one of the most significant decisions with respect to secondary works of all time in Anglo-Saxon law. At issue is control of the original work by the artist for the original work. And to the extent that this is held to be not a fair use, I think the critics are correct that that will mean that the original artists have much more control over their works. The question is whether or not the next step in that argument is correct. Does giving the original artist more control over the work inhibit future creativity? And as we heard in the oral argument, there was a lot of discussion of licensing. Doesn't the right 
to license these original works to make changes allow you to still engage in level of creativity? This was not said in court, but look, you had very wealthy entities involved here. You had Vanity Fair, Andy Warhol. They clearly had the wherewithal to license the photograph again from Lynn Goldsmith in order to do these 16 colorized silk screens, but they deliberately chose not to. It strikes me that Lynn Goldsmith was entitled to some benefit for her creativity in the first place, which she was being um, deprived of. So yes, there is going to be a change in the bargaining power amongst artists as to secondary uses of original works. Whether or not it stops creativity, I I just don't think so. Thanks so much, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Nugent Rosenman. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Solicitor General's office remains the diversity pipeline for Supreme Court advocacy. 
The office, along with attorneys from state and local governments, sent the majority of women to the lectern last term. In total, 23 female government attorneys argued during the 2021 term, while law firms and academia sent 15. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson, who keeps track of the numbers. So we've talked before about the number of men arguing at the Supreme Court vastly outnumbering the number of women. Four women are arguing in the October session. How does that stack up? Is that about the same as usual, or better than usual? Well, it's about the same as usual. So typically, we see between twelve to twenty-four percent of arguments at the Supreme Court being made by women. This time, you know, four out of twenty-two is eighteen percent. So it's right in the middle of what we're typically used to. But I think you know, one thing to note is we we talk about、um, women. I think. You know, to some extent, it's low-hanging fruit, but it really signals a lack of diversity across the board. You know, not just with gender, but with race, with you know, attorneys with disabilities, with military service—just all kinds of diversity that we really don't see reflected in the advocates who argue before the Supreme Court. Two of the women who argued in the October session are in the Solicitor General's office. Tell us about the role of the Solicitor General's office in getting women to the podium. Sure. So the Solicitor General's office is the federal government's top lawyers at the Supreme Court. They not only argue in cases that the federal government is officially involved in as a party, but they argue a lot of cases as sort of friends of the court. And so that office isn't, you know, staffed by that many attorneys. So getting into that office almost guarantees you, you know, multiple Supreme Court arguments. In a term, which is significant, it's something that's really hard for even really established attorneys to do in private practice. So, what that does is it allows the attorneys who are there, who are often relatively early in their careers, to kind of build this critical mass of Supreme Court cases that they can take out to the world. And so, people will hire them, and we'll be seeing them back at the court again and again for years to come. So, you know, the makeup of the Solicitor General's office is really Really, really important in establishing, you know, diversity in the future of the Supreme Court bar. The current Solicitor General is a woman. The second to be Solicitor General, the last being now Justice Elena Kagan. So, is the office making an effort to get more women and more minorities into the office? Well, we don't know. So the Solicitor General's office hasn't officially said that you know that's an effort that they're trying to make. But we have seen kind of、um, a shift in the demographics of that office during the Trump administration, not really due to you know the DOJ's own sort of policies or anything like that, but just sort of the timing of you know when people come and go from the office. We saw a, a number of female assistant solicitor generals leave the office, and we saw a real shift in the number of women who were arguing at the court. There have been a number of women who have been hired under the Biden administration. I believe the three most recent hires have all been women. So they haven't made an official statement that that's something that they're looking for, but it sure does seem to show in the numbers that they have, not just with women, but with also with different kinds of diversity,、um, in particular racial diversity. So you wrote about Yara. Dubin, who recently joined the Solicitor General's office, do lawyers often leave law firms for a time to do a stint in the Solicitor General's office and then return? Yeah, so I mean, it, it varies a little bit, but I would say in general, you're looking at somebody who 
um, often comes from private practice, you know, a, a firm that has, you know, an appellate and Supreme Court practice or a boutique firm, somebody who has often clerked at the Supreme Court before, and they will go to the Solicitor General's office, which is a really highly sought after position, and typically stay there about five years before uh, heading back out to private practice. And we really see that that gives them the ability to argue, you know, 10 or more cases. It doesn't sound like a lot, but when you look at the Supreme Court, they only hear about 60 to 70 cases each term. So coming out with 10 cases, it's a really big deal. It's a good amount of experience to then go out and convince clients that, you know, you have what it takes to argue in front of the justices and and you can do the job for them. Do the justices treat lawyers who are new to the court, first timers, with sort of more kindness than they would other lawyers or it doesn't matter? Well, the Supreme Court is usually very respectful of the advocates. You know, again, we're talking about an appellate argument here, so it's not as if people are getting into yelling matches. But it did seem, particularly with Ms. Dubin's argument, that the justices were being a bit more careful with her. We still, though, however, saw some pretty tough questioning on her part, trying to pin down the federal government where they were. Uh, but after that, you know, two of the justices said, thank you so much. That was very helpful. <laughs> something that you don't always see of repeat advocates, something you really rarely see whenever it's somebody that they've seen up there before. So I know you, you've done the numbers. How many women from private practice argue at the Supreme Court or this term have, and how many women from the Solicitor General's office? Well, this term, it's just half and half. You know, we just kicked off this term in October, and we only had eight cases. So, you know, two of the women have come from private practice, two from the Solicitor General's office. But I suspect those numbers will shift if history is any guide. You know, in the past, we've seen... You know, attorneys, not just from the Solicitor General's office, but from other governments, state and local governments, tend to provide the majority of women attorneys who argue cases at the court. You know, last term is a good example. Last term, government entities spent 23 female lawyers and all other entities, law firms, academia, public interest groups, sent just 15. So it's really important, you know, to pay attention to the composition of those government groups um, and kind of understanding what the future of the Supreme Court bar is going to look like. The Alabama voting case had a different kind of cross-section of lawyers. It did. Yeah, that was a case where it was unique um, in several respects. First, there were four different uh, attorneys who were arguing the case. Typically, there's only two, maybe three, if the federal government is arguing. Before, it was quite a lot. But when we look at the attorneys who were arguing, it was unique in the sense that there were two attorneys of color, two women arguing, including, um, as you mentioned, the U.S. Solicitor General, Elizabeth Blogger, who was just the second woman to hold the office. And, you know, we saw two first-timers who were making their Supreme Court debut, which is somewhat unique in that most of the cases at the Supreme Court are handled by people who are considered veterans, those who have argued five or more cases before the court before. So it was really uh, atypical in the sort of representation um, that was arguing that case. And of course, you know, that was an important case to have that kind of representation because it was a case about voting rights for minority voters. So um, I think one that that we would expect to see that sort of atypical representation. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. 
And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.